0: welcome to the fabric a podcast from lobby capital in this podcast we explore the people we back the people we work with and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs but instead a combination of past experiences relationships serendipity and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. All right, welcome to The Fabric. I'm Buddy Arnheim, your host. Fabric is a podcast by Lobby Capital. And today we have the privilege of talking with one of my favorite people on the entire planet. And that's you, Buddy Arnheim. (laughs) That's me. David Hornick, welcome to the podcast.
1: You're not the host of this episode. (laughs) I am the host of The Fabric today, and I'm letting it go to my head. Yes, I am passing the baton to David, and he's going to actually interview me today. That's right, because you can't interview yourself, although it would be kind of entertaining. Yeah, Yeah, I could.
0: I could do different voices. I could do, well, buddy, tell (laughs) us about your childhood.
1: Very sonorous. Tell me about your childhood, buddy. So, buddy and I have known each other for, what, 25 years? Yeah. 25 years. That's a pretty big chunk of our lives. And seeing as we're only in our low 40s. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We were like 12. We met back in the day when we were both young attorneys and uh, fell in love. And I mean that very truly. Truly. Should we back up before that? I guess we should back up before that. Uh, Not too far. Well, we can go back. You were a lovely little Jewish boy outside of Chicago. Highland Park, Illinois. Highland Park. Yes. Tell me more, buddy. Buddy, you're a very strange version of the Highland Park Jew. You you hunt. I thought
0: <laughs> I had, You know, I, I think of in all the interviews I've had, I realize I'm the most boring of all the people I've talked to. Like I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, like middle class family, mom, dad, two sisters. I was the baby. We had a dog. We had a yard. I was a student. I swam. This is it? If you tell the story that way, that's not a whole lot of excitement. But. I don't know. You swam in Chicago like competitively? I was a competitive swimmer through grammar school, junior high, high school, even a little bit into college. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, did, yeah. Does Penn even have us? I guess we know they do. Yeah, we know Penn they do. Division One, and it was a real swim team that I decided not to stick with. But you get—did you get into Penn on a swimming
1: admission? Did you like get admitted because they wanted you to swim, or did you get admitted because they thought you were smart? Yeah. Which of those things, buddy? It's for sure, the latter. For <laughs> sure, the latter. Was it, though? Did but you I get in for swimming? swimming?
0: Card. I did. Did. You, did you get in for swimming or debate? <laughs> Which was it? I think it was my intellect, my raw and amazing intellect. But I did play the swimming card. I did meet with the coach. I did all that kind of stuff. But I never really swam on it. Did you compete? Did you ever like, you, so you never I, raced? It was like the first couple of weeks I went to practice and then fraternity rush started. So t- here's the thing as a competitive swimmer in high school, and I was pretty competitive, I swam like six or seven hours a day, like literally morning, two and a half hours, after school, three and a half hours. My life was swimming. And as a result of that, I wasn't very social in high school. I was like, yeah, I had my friends. I had my girlfriend, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about, but I was a swimmer and swimming is a 12 month a year sport. You don't stop. You, you sort of do it during school, but then off school, you're in club. And then this club, when it hits summer, you do summer league and
1: so, what do you do for six hours? Like swimming, yeah. best I can tell, I is you, you flap your arms, you kick your feet, <laughs> you propel yourself, you, right? your blow some bubbles, you propel yourself down from one
0: end to the next. Like, what in the world were you doing yeah. Yeah, it is, for um, six hours? It is, and I still swim, and, and not six hours. It's meditation in the water, right? You do. It's exactly that. You just go back and forth. Do you get better? Like,
1: <laughs> I mean, theoretically, so, you get faster, <laughs> but. Do you think back on that time and think, man, oh, man, think of all the amazing things I could have done with all those
0: hours? I mean, look, I love swimming. I still love swimming. I love the water. I love being in the water. I love the sort of feeling of being able to propel myself. But I will say, like, being a swimmer, a competitive swimmer, and spending so much time swimming, there were a lot of things that I I feel like I was an incredibly late bloomer because – I didn't think about going to parties. I didn't think about you know. I didn't try acting. I didn't join the band. I, I was swimming all the time. I couldn't. And so, you know, when I got to college and I decided not to swim, it was largely because I wanted to have the social experience of college that I clearly did not get in high school. So I joined a fraternity and I did other things, right? Like I, I did other things. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, you can't even name another. You joined like. So by the way, this was my experience. I got to Stanford and I was going to be in the orchestra, right? I was this very good violinist by New Hampshire standards, I bass, right? I played bass, but I had gone there to be a violinist. I was like, I'm going to go play violin. And I auditioned for the orchestra and I didn't get into the orchestra and it had never entered my mind that I wouldn't. You know how many violinists there are in orchestra? There are like 8 million of them. If you can't make it as a violinist, you're a total fucking loser. I like It's unbelievable. So the assistant director of the orchestra said, David, it would have been nice if you had practiced and whatever else. And it's like, feel free to try out again. And um, you would think that I would have been kind of devastated by that because I literally assumed that my social life was going to be hanging out with these orchestra people. And when I didn't make it, suddenly it just opened all these doors because it was like, oh, all that time that I otherwise would be on trips with the orchestra and practicing and all that stuff, I can do other things. And to your point, I played bass, so I played in musicals and I was into politics
0: and so did political things and I was into comedy and I did comedy. And I think that's what college is for. You know, now watching what my kids having most of them through college and seeing the diversity of stuff that they touched and they tried. I think that's what college is about, right? Trying new things. You would hope, right? Right. But the other thing that college is definitely
1: about is meeting amazing people, yes. right? And so, you know, you joined a fraternity, which is obviously very helpful in meeting people. I know that you ended up knowing Mark Pincus back in the day when he was busy, you know, doing the same stupid things you yeah. were doing. Did you make a bunch of friends? And, and at Penn, were you focused on business at that yeah, point? Do I, I remember?
0: And, I was in work. So, so the things that I knew... Is I actually wanted to be an entrepreneur, believe it or not, and I wanted to sort of see what the social thing was because I didn't really have it in high school. I was kind of shy, you know. Honestly, like what I I know, <laughs> and I still feel like I'm a shy person, and nobody ever nobody believed, believes that. But I kind of was, or at least I thought I was, and so I'm slow to warm. But I so I joined the fraternity thinking, okay, this is going to be the best way to meet a bunch of people, and it starts. I don't know if it's still that way at Penn, but it started like the first day you land. There's oh my rush God. began. So if you were going to join a fraternity that was like all encompassing right away when you got on campus and I ended up going to joining this fraternity Pi Kappa Alpha which I had never heard of before but it's like where I felt comfortable and where I was meeting people so it was the nerds
1: it was the, the, <laughs> the Jewish nerds it <laughs> was a Jewish fraternity okay let's be clear. this doesn't surprise me at all All right, so you went and did the Wharton thing. So you were actually studying undergraduate business, which is pretty unusual,
0: right? Well, yeah, you know, it was obvious that I wanted to do that. It was a because I wanted to do business, and then, you know, you get onto the Penn campus, and at that time, I'm sure it's different now, but at that time. There was the whole turn to Wharton, like that was. It, it was the center. It was the
1: center. center Same grabbing. way that Stanford, the computer science department, exactly. Uh, you get to Penn, and exactly. Wharton
0: is kind of the like where you ob- want to be obelisk yeah. that sucks you in. Yeah, but I will say, so when you're an undergrad Wharton, you have a whole bunch of requirements, right? You have to take different types of finance classes and economics and statistics and marketing and management, and all that. But you do get a small kitty of electives that you can take. And so I decided that my electives were going to be primarily consumed by going abroad my junior year. And I wanted, for whatever reason, I wanted to go to Italy. So the only elective that I took at Penn was Italian language. And then when I went abroad junior year, I was able to soak up all those other electives. So I did get a little bit away from worry. Did you take Renaissance art totally. in Florence? Yes. Did you go to Florence? Where did you go? Florence. I went to Florence. Of course you did. Yes. So I took Renaissance art, I took a cooking oh my class, God. I took Italian history, I
1: took who knows what else. I don't Did you any. instantly say to yourself, "Why am I a business major?" Like, <laughs> yes, this is what I get to do in the like one moment but, that I'm not doing Morton crap? I get to have a nice life. And smile. Like for the first (laughs) time, I was smiling during school. Like I loved it. I mean, yeah, you get to go to the Uffizi, look at the Botticelli,
0: and you get to eat some pasta. Like what Uh, is bad about that? Nothing at all. Grappa occasionally as well, just to kind of wash it all down. And then I will tell you, so it was important to me to develop my Italian language. I was like, I wanted to be fluent in Italian. So the program I picked was um, through Syracuse University, and it it was the one program that allowed you to live with a family. (laughs) As opposed to live in a dorm and with a bunch of other americans and so i get to florence and that first night there's only like six guys on the program the rest are all women and so all six of us are put into this one hotel room for the first night before we get split up into our families and one of the guys in the room is this guy jim jim Fodi, who's now one of my closest friends i love the guy to death and he had grown up on oahu and he was like the yeah. classic surfer dude like absolutely classic he had the surfer hair he had the surfer body he had the surfer dialect he was incredibly relaxed and he had this one characteristic that from day one has always odd me it was he was absolutely 100 comfortable in his own skin and, and completely uninhibited like there was nothing that phased him there's nothing that sort of made him nervous or self-conscious it was just an amazing thing to witness you know so anyway we ended up rooming together with this family And we would go to like bars and he was fearless about talking to anybody. It didn't matter who it was. And all of a sudden we had all these Italian friends. And again, you don't think I'm shy, but I was super shy. But it was great to have this magnet that I could just follow that would attract all these different types of people. But it's a little bit of a lesson like, you
1: know, you left Wharton having made a bunch of real relationships, and you are still friendly with those people. There are people you are friendly with. There are people like this guy who you are remain very close with etc i think that it is the entire point and i think that as we have progressed and now you know sitting here in this lobby capital venture world the fact that we are still in touch with people who we went to college with we went to high school with we went to law school with we represented all those things it's invaluable yeah. But more importantly, it's not because it's invaluable. It's not like you stay in touch because, oh, my goodness, at some point, like, I don't know know what your surfer buddy does for a living, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to stay in touch with you because you're going to help me. It's because humans are awesome. Yeah. And staying in touch with awesome humans is fun. Totally. And enriching. It's, it's amazing. Interesting. And then you get the opportunity, it turns out, in this business, to then go work with awesome people. And then you get to meet their awesome friends, and you get to work with their awesome friends. I was just on the phone with the brother of a woman I met at Candice, our venture partner's son's bar mitzvah. Oh, wow. So I go to the bar mitzvah. I'm like the only guy from Silicon Valley. I'm sat down at a table of her business school friends. I start chatting with this awesome woman. We have this long talk. She's like, you have to meet my brother. You'll really enjoy him. Turns out he is the CEO of the biggest independent fintech company in Canada. He like created this robo visor that's now the biggest neo bank in Canada. And he's just the nicest guy. And I wouldn't have ever met him except that Candace is awesome. And I went to the bar mitzvah and I was put next to the friend and the friend was very chatty and right. So this idea that you're an introvert or that you're like quite <laughs> just, I yeah. mean, I'm you've gotten over it, well, right?
0: I, I admit that today I'm not an introvert. And I would say today that the thing that probably gives me the most joy of everything that I do and experience is meeting people and getting to know who they are, what they are, you know, their background. It's not about a transaction. It's not about, oh boy, I have the biggest network in the world. It's about meeting people is interesting and getting to know people is even more interesting. And totally. And you know what's a bad way to like get to know people and
1: stay in touch with them is to be an asshole. Pushing people away and being rude and being non-responsive and all of those things, right? In the venture business, there's no reason to be mean about it. People are all just trying to build a business. And so what you do is try and help them. Yep. You can't always help them and you can't do everything, whatever, but there's just no reason not to like say, oh good for you you're working your ass off and you're
0: amazing I think that's the deal that all of us should make with entrepreneurs is look we may not fund you and and we may not even agree with you we Man. won't fund you we fund one, one. in
1: 500 a thousand deals right exactly that is not a reflection on you that's just
0: very bad odds and so what we can do is we can be respectful and we can you know to the extent that we are able to build a dialogue with an entrepreneur we can you know at least share with them what we're thinking like we can be honest. Yeah, honest. In exchange for that, we would ask them
1: to be similarly honest. You and I were just having a conversation because you just came off a conversation where an entrepreneur was presenting to you a business that was not an unreasonable business. That's interesting. And funded by interesting people and going after a market, but gave you an answer that to your mind was clearly dishonest. And you gave them every chance on the planet
0: to remedy the lie, and they did not. Yeah, obviously it stuck with me after the call because I raised it with you right before this podcast. Yeah, I, I don't understand that mentality. Like, here it is. He's proposing that we start a 10-year partnership, right? Because these deals <laughs> at, are- At least. At least, right? If I invest, we're going to work together for 10 years, why in God's name would you try to start that relationship with untruths? Like, doesn't make any sense to me. It's not logical. Yeah. All you can do- is
1: put forward your best foot. You can't put forward someone else's foot. (laughs) It's (laughs) It's your best foot. Like, we just wanna know what you know and what you don't know and how's it going and what's the hard part and do you have some thoughts about fixing the hard part? And when we like you and you're being smart and you're being truthful and you're acknowledging things you don't know, then we say, great, maybe we could help you build a big, interesting business here. Right. How often have you been pitched on a business where you finish the conversation like, wow, that business is firing on all cylinders and this CEO knows all the answers, yeah. and all I have to do is give you money and it will turn right. into more money. Have you ever seen Never. that deal? I want that deal. I want to see that deal. <laughs> I want you to see that I deal. That deal so As your partner, I would like you to see that Never, deal. Never, ever, ever. In 23 years in the venture business, I have funded somewhere between 40 and 50 companies. And do you know how many have met their plan they presented to me at the first meeting, I'll cast zero. It isn't zero. <laughs> Splunk did. Oh, nice. And that was pretty good. It turned out okay. Uh, uh, maintain X, killing it, killing Beating it. the mark. Did anyone else? And Fastly, I think Fastly. Bill.com, a now $15 billion business, did not by any stretch of the imagination. Ebates, which we sold for a billion dollars, did not by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I mean, it's, it's so right. hard. It never happens. So why lie about it? Yeah. Like, why lie?
0: Right. As you were talking, I was trying to go through the companies that I invested in early that were successful. Yeah, right. What? Yeah. Open table? Like, oh my oh, God, not even our close, lives, right? right? The other thing that I'll say about honesty is, you know, when we are looking at entrepreneurs, we're looking, you know, how self-aware are they? You know, can they see the blind spots? Because if they can't see the blind spots, how are they supposed to sort of react to them or avoid them or... You know, get around them. And so the honesty is both about the partnership, but it's also about their acumen. Like, yeah. Are they aware of the reality? Also, what is that culture?
1: Right? Like so much about companies is have you built a culture that engages people? It makes people want to work with you, makes them want to work hard and be successful, it makes everybody celebrate when it works, etc. And a culture of lying? Like I mean, I've seen one. I I once funded a pathological liar. And boy, by the time it was done, it was was so terrible. Yeah. The only saving grace, and this is, again, I think like one of the things that you and I know and do just because it is broken and someone was lying to you doesn't mean the experience is devoid of value. One of the great, great recruiters of this planet was at that company. And when she left that company after it imploded, said, I guess I'm going to start my own firm. And I think I was one of the first, if not the first to hire her, because I was like, you are super talented just because that company, just because that CEO screwed you over doesn't mean you're not amazing. And now she is awesome. Like Everybody's begging for her time. And I feel so lucky to have known her since she was you know,
0: just getting started. So this is a classic, like in everything, there is opportunity, right? Even if its face looks like a disaster, there's still opportunities there. And that's why building these relationships is an added benefit, right? If you're there and you know the people, you're going to learn something from the lesson. You're going to find the diamond in the rough that then carries forward to a new relationship or a new opportunity. I totally agree with that the question i have for you how did you end up in law school
1: like what you know so you Mm -hmm. thought you were going to be an entrepreneur you go to wharton like what the hell i was a computer music major you know what you do with a computer music degree you go to law school that's what you do
0: (laughs) (laughs) what was your excuse so okay so i i will say that i again i feel like i was a late bloomer like i woke up late in life and i'm still waking up there's so many things i want to do now that i didn't even know existed you know like even a few years ago so here was the state of mind. I went to Italy for my junior year. I came back and I was sort of just in Italy in my mind my whole senior year. I actually finished early, and so my second semester senior year, I just worked, hung out in Philly, and kind of goofed around. I was reading in the paper. I was, you know, started paying attention to the Wall Street Journal, and I saw that lawyers were getting like fourteen hundred dollars a week for summer internships. I'm like, what? Oh, that's a lot of money, right? At the <laughs> time, I thought that was little, like gobs and gobs of it. So. Anyway, my senior year, I ended up taking the LSAT and applying to law school and and I went to law school and never thought I'd be a lawyer. Nobody in my family was ever a lawyer. But I will say when I finally went to law school, I really liked it. Like first year of law school is cool. It's it's like learning a foreign language and it's super competitive. And one thing I know is I do like to compete. It's fun to compete. I will say there was this one class that I never did anything with after law school that I truly enjoyed. It was um, Criminal Procedure. I thought it was it's such awesome. a little- cool, It's awesome. Crim Pro is so good. <laughs> I just really enjoyed it. And then- Now,
1: you and I are unusual because I also, you know, I got to law school. Everybody's freaking out like, oh, the competition's crazy and oh, they're all freaking out. And I was like, what is your deal? Like, you're going to get a job. Right. It's not like a thing- and partially it was because I'm dyslexic and I was like, what kind of idiotic dyslexic goes to law school? Like, I can't really worry about it that much. I just have to hunker down and try and read all yeah. this stuff. you know. <laughs> then it comes time for exams. I'm thinking they were freaking out. Like, I'll just do what I can do. Like it is what it is. And I took classes I liked and I would wander the halls of law school whistling and smiling and people were like, why are you happy? Right. What's wrong with And I am <laughs> like, oh, why are you not happy? I don't understand why would you choose To do a thing that you dislike and then be unhappy about it—that seemed insane to me. So, but were you an
0: outlier? I assume that there you were the vast minority. Well, and it gets to this whole thing about people. Like, you know, you go to law school; everybody's smart. Like, when are you in an environment where everybody is smart? Yeah, and everybody sort of has worked hard to get to where they're at. So, yeah, I liked it a lot, and I was absolutely an outlier. My freshman roommate, so we did not live in dorms. We rented, it was in Champaign, Illinois. So, you know, we rented this house and I had a roommate, great guy, but I think he actually thought I was an alien because I was smiling and Ah. and on the weekends I was going out to movies or whatever and not sort of stressing about the the law work and he was incredibly diligent guy. And so, yeah, you know, and then I saw this advertisement for river rafting in the hills in Indiana, which is, you know, like a four hour drive. So I, you know, booked it and I coordinated a bunch of our friends to sort of go on it. They're like, "Wait a second, that's like mid-semester. We, yeah, yeah, we can't, we can't do away. that. That's a, are we allowed to do it? Yeah, we're allowed to do that. Let's go do it." So, yeah, I was. <laughs> when, it, when I had an awesome roommate,
1: my roommate was this guy Steve Boom. Steve and I lived across the hall from each other in our freshman dorm. We we were roommates in law school. He's now vice president of Amazon, running all their media stuff. So good for you, Steve Boom. You're a machine. And Steve was a better student. He was, you know, like he went in, he was Phi Beta Kappa, Tau Beta Pi, Double E, and history. Like he was just, I mean, Steve Boom is a god. But he was working really hard. And then I met, after my first year of law school, I met my now wife. And she eventually moved back. She dropped out of grad school. She was doing social work. She came to Boston. And uh, she gets this apartment. She hangs out. She has to find something to do. And she starts working at the Harvard Law Child Care Center. Which Wait, was this
0: after the wedding where you guys met? Yeah, this,
1: way uh, back. Yeah. We meet at this wedding. We spend every minute of the summer together. She moves out to Boston. So now she's working at the Harvard Law Childcare Center. I'm living with Steve. She's coming and going. And at that point, I start spending like hours a day hanging out in this preschool with my future wife and that. these three-year-olds. And boom, was just like... What are you doing? <laughs> like, this is not, are, are you in law school? And uh, how are you? No. He literally was just mystified when I got reasonable grades. Like, yeah, I well, just don't even understand it. But but
0: I think that's probably why you did, right? You got
1: away from it. You, now, we zoomed past it, but you met your now wife in high
0: school. I did. You started dating her when? Yeah, and, I like, like this story. This is, yeah. and because now I get <laughs> to tell it without her here. Okay. So she can't interrupt her course correct. All right. I married my high school sweetheart she was 1 year older in school which i love to remind her that she's older cuz her birthday turns in december i still am younger for you know a few, few months <laughs> so anyway i vividly remember this i'm in the career center or the college center whatever it was called and this little cute girl i see you know immediately had a crush and i didn't know who it was i'd tear in the hallway after that day every now and then and you i'd always stalk her and i don't know about you but like at that age 15 years old I definitely had an interest in girls, but man, could I not talk to anybody? Like, <laughs> like Seriously, I had complete tongue tie around- That's crazy. I was a machine. Were you? No. no. Course, no. You at me. Were you like- <laughs> anyway, I was a good student and I was put into this AP English class my sophomore year with all the juniors and seniors. And it just so happens that she was in it. And I'm on the left-hand side of the classroom. She's on the right. There's probably 20 or some odd kids. And she's sitting next to- This guy, I'm not going to say his name on the podcast because it's just not worth it torturing myself with his name. But the entire semester, I am afraid to say anything to her. But I'm looking, I'm glancing, and she's always talking to Danny, was his name Danny. Okay. So, and so she's always talking to Danny, right? And I'm telling my two older sisters about this girl that I have a crush on. They're like, talk to her, just talk to her. I'm like, that sounds so easy when you say it to, talk to her, but I fucking just don't. be
1: clear. By by, <laughs> by this point, I feel better because now you're in a class, and so you know what she sounds like. Right. It turns right. out she's in your AP English class. She's, she's smart. very smart. She's, she's lovely. <laughs> like it's not just that you
0: were like pining. It turns but, out like wait a second. Although I will say like I do have this probably. Irrational feeling that there is such a thing as love at first sight, but we'll talk about that another time. Beshert, as they say, exactly. It, you know, meant to be. So uh, anyway, the last day of school comes, and um, on the last day of school, everybody gets their grades, and then they're asked to clear out their locker, and then they're done. And my sisters are like, "Did you talk to her yet?" And I'm like, "No." And they're like, "Okay, this is what <laughs> you're going to say to her if you yeah. see her." So I literally wrote on my hand a script: "Hi." How are you doing? I am, my buddy. Boy. Aren't I? Totally talking totally, 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 <laughs> <laughs> robot boy. <laughs> so we're, I, we finished the class. I knew where her locker was. So I intentionally sort of walked towards that way. And lo and behold, she was sitting down in front of her locker cleaning it out. And so I came up and with my hand discreetly held that my hip but shining up so I could see my script. I said hi to her. Hi, Julie. What are you doing right. this summer? Yes, And it was exactly <laughs> that. No, this was the question. I remember it. So I said, "Hey, you know, how did Mrs. Ingerman's class go for you? How did you do?" And her response was, "Oh, I got an A, but a B is a good grade too." Meaning- Figuring you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and at that point, I finally, like, you know, shed my nervousness, and because my pride came out, and I'm like, "I didn't get a B." <laughs> So anyway, that was our first conversation. It wasn't quite as forceful as that, but she got the point. And then she was going away for the summer to Santa Barbara. And uh, at the end of the summer where I grew up, there was a place called Ravinia Park where all the teenagers would sneak in. It was an outdoor concert place. There was a pavilion and then there was a big grass area and then we'd all sneak in and sit in the grass area with our coolers and talk. And I'm there, it's August, it's a week before school starts or something. And, and you see her th- through th- the haze. I see Julie. <laughs> And uh, so I was a little more courageous this time because I probably had consumed a couple of beers and um, walked up to her, and we ended up talking, and that was the beginning of our 30-some beer relationship.
1: Anyway, so you're in law school, and w- you were dating Julie. Right. Were you together? Like, did she live yeah. there and distract you? No, it sounds like you were yeah. just still hanging out. And our deal
0: was always so we were not together. We were eight long distance for eight years. Wow, law school, undergrad, everything. And uh, our deal was look if we want to be together, we're together. If we don't, you know, no expectations. But for some reason in law school, she was already working in Chicago. I was now in law school starting to get a little more serious and our relationship got more serious. And so yep. right after the first year of law school, after I externed for a judge that summer, she was able to take a few weeks off and we took our backpacks and we went over to Europe. And while we were in Italy where I had lived, uh, I asked her to marry me.
1: What? Yeah. You're like, okay, I guess it's serious. Yeah. Like, that's a
0: bizarre, nope. like, yeah, if you don't want to be with me, whatever. Right. Okay, okay, marry what me. Well, so this is another thing. And I will say this kind of relates to the job. At least for me, my best decisions, I can't say they were subconscious. I've said this on another podcast, but they become so obvious that they just happen. And so we'd known each other for so long. And when it was time to ask her to marry, I didn't like consciously think, okay, should I marry her? Is this the pros and the cons? No, It just was like, yeah, of course I'm going to ask her to marry me. And so I did. I mean,
1: my experience was we had been together you know, constantly or whatever. And I went over to Japan. My brother was working in Japan and my sister and I went and visited him. We traveled around and it was fun. It was a great, fun thing. And all I did was spend my time thinking about Pamela and like, why am I not with Pamela? And she would have loved this trip and she should have come. And the day I returned, I reached out to get a ring. But it was very much the like, huh, this should be amazing, but it isn't amazing because this woman who I would want to be with isn't with me. And so that's- So it became obvious. It was like an obvious- Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And honestly, I think to your point about how it applies to our lives now, the way you know if there's a company you're excited about funding is that you wake up the morning after you have seen the deal- thinking about the company yeah. right the vast majority of time you have a meeting and even if it's a good meeting you think like oh that was a good meeting and the next morning it's not even anywhere in your brain yeah but the ones you're really excited about you wake up and you're like oh you know what would be interesting yes So I think there is an intuition to this job, but it's not based on nothing, right? No. You had eight years of data, right? Right. And also there is a certain intensity to it, right? With me, you know, meeting Pamela and then spending every minute of the entire summer when I wasn't being a lawyer, you know, you get a lot of information over a short period of time. And I, I think that- There is something a little bit precarious about describing the fundraising process like dating, but it really is, right? It really is. and So many analogies to it. And not in an offensive way. You want to build these relationships. You meet someone, they're super compelling, and you want to hear their story, and you want to hear what they're thinking about, and you want to ask them questions, right? I mean, those early days of any relationship where like- You just want to know everything about that person. That's true of entrepreneurship too. It's like, I remember the first time I met Wences Caceres, who I sadly didn't fund because he's just incredible. This is just a person when he tells you his life story, you're like, please tell me more. Oh my God. Howard and I didn't even know what to do with ourselves because it was such an amazing story.
0: You know, Part of this podcast is to try to unravel what are the characteristics that make an entrepreneur an entrepreneur and lead them to success. And You know, I think one of the things that's starting to unfold is the diversity of their knowledge, right? Like the best entrepreneurs know more about their subject matter than anybody ever will, but that's not all they know. Other things have influenced them to sort of learn this domain and to sort of polish these skills. I think about Hidden Level, which is one of our portfolio companies. It's the first investment I made out of this. You know, what attracted me to Jeff, this founding CEO there was. He had such an amazing background, and it wasn't all about air detection, but it was about a grandfather that sort of had a myriad of interests and time with the agency where he was protecting our country. And then there was foreign travel and unique studies and, you know, hardship. And there's all these things that influenced who he was that ultimately created his ambition, created his focus, created his drive. And so, I think that is part of it also. It is fascinating to get to know these people. It's also fascinating to sort of understand the businesses they're trying to build and the vision they're seeing for the future. But it's also just amazing to hear about who they are and what's motivated them. I, I'm sure there are venture investors out there who think that's
1: insane. Insane. And are like, yeah, yeah, show me your PL and And right. they do that thing. That is not how you and I live. And so, I'm going to fast forward us. You go to law school, blah, blah, blah. You end up becoming a startup attorney in Silicon Valley and a very good one, an amazing one. You were at Gunderson Detmer. You were Bob Gunderson's right-hand man and in the height of the crazy internet times, right? And it was crazy. amazing time. And that's when you and I met because I was at Venture Law Group. You were at Gunderson Detmer. They were sort of mortal
0: enemies in but, this world. two firms that were doing the most startup work and- Affiliated with the best companies, hundred percent, and full of people who like
1: cared about business, right? Which ended up being the problem for them because people who like business also want to go do business, you know. But anyway, we start talking to this firm, Perkins Coie, independently, and I don't know what your conversation was like. I wasn't there, but my conversation was, "Hey, this would be amazing. We're going to start this practice. We don't have anyone who really does." this very Silicon Valley-ish stuff yeah. and you've done it and that'd be exciting. Do you want to join us? And I say to them, yeah, this seems amazing. Like it sounds like it'll be really fun to build something from scratch, et cetera. But I really need a mentor. Like I need someone who knows the law because I didn't know shit. (laughs) And they're like, well, we may have that guy. And so let me check with him because it was very hush-hush because you were talking about leaving a really great position where you were in an awesome space. I was leaving nothing. Not- <laughs> no one was like, oh no, don't let David Hornet go. They're like, you know, don't let the door hit you on the butt <laughs> on the way out. That's right. But anyway... So they say, we'll ask him. And that was you.
0: What was the conversation you were having on the other side? Yeah. So I was at Brobeck. And then when gunderson Dentmer was formed, I was essentially brought along in the vortex. Like just, you know, I had worked working for Bob. He was starting a new firm. Where else would I go? So I went to that. And those first days at Gunderson-Dentwer were super fun. It was a startup. And here I am, a guy that was practicing law, but always thought of himself as a businessman or an entrepreneur. And I was finally getting a chance to do something entrepreneurial. So I did that, loved it. And a few years later, I was up for partner. And that's a natural time for a lawyer to look around and say, do I want to be a partner? Like, is that what I want to commit to? Or is there other opportunities? And after practicing at that time, six years, I actually had some expertise. I actually acknowledged that I knew something. And so I had some other choices. And I was being recruited by a venture fund that ultimately I said, no, I had a couple of general counsel positions that I was considering. And I realized that's not exactly what I wanted. And when you're at a law firm and you're up for partner you can't really talk to your colleagues about work do work things or, or options right otherwise you kill your opportunities so i called up an old colleague bob zip who was one of these people that was recruiting for perkins and i said bob you know i've got these different choices what do you think and he's like They're all good, interesting choices, but what you should really do is help start the offices for Perkins and the Bay
1: Which was completely (laughs) self-interested because Bob and Jim Brock were at Venture Law Group where I was working for them, and they left to become affiliated with Perkins Coie. And what they didn't want to do was the The law. So
0: they're like, those are bad options, buddy, because you need to come do the work we don't want to do. work. You know, it's funny when he first offered it up, I was like, no freaking way. There's no way I'm going to join another law firm. I'm very happy at my law. That doesn't even have a
1: presence. Like, no
0: presence. one in the Bay Area has ever heard That's of Perkins going. Right. It was like, what? But he was persistent. And as my other opportunities became less attractive, for some reason, I was willing to sort of learn more. And I met Bob Giles, who was the managing partner mm-hmm. at Perkins. And I met Chuck Katz, Chuck I'm sure Katz, who was incredibly dynamic. He's so charming. He's like so yeah. charming. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden I thought, wow, that's cool. But I will say, there's no way I would have taken it if you weren't in the mix also. Cause I similarly was like, I can't do this on my own. No freaking way. <laughs> and then I met you and you were incredibly enthusiastic about it. And I just was like, I love this guy already. I just wanted to work. <laughs>
1: well, that was the thing that was so ridiculous. It's like, again, love at first sight. Like We so just cool. start talking, but we didn't talk about the law. No. We talked about the fact that we both had little kids and we were parents and we were trying to balance being good lawyers and we were both ambitious and we yeah. kind of talked about that. But at the end of that first conversation, I said to Pamela like, okay, well, if he's doing it, I'm doing it. That's not a question. And you did it first. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, because you said to me, I said, well, that's amazing. Like, what's your process? And you said, I have a vacation, which no one has a vacation in the life. You were going camping, which also like camping with little kids. I think you were going camping. And you said, said, you're like, I'll be back in a week and we can talk about it. And while you were gone, I was like, I'm in. And I joined. And when you returned- We had a a conversation and I said, you have to join. And you're like, what do you mean I have to join? I said, well, I already joined. joined. And you were like, what was your reaction? You must be like, what an idiot.
0: No, you know, (laughs) again, getting back to that subconscious thing, like it just was right. It was the right thing to do. You know, maybe in hindsight, it was clearly the right thing to do. But at the time it was like, why not? What do you have to lose? Right? Yeah, it was an opportunity, which is a little bit us because, like, yes. what do you have to
1: lose? Like all sorts of
0: things. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. So. I guess if you think about it too much, don't you don't walk away. So don't think too much if you're an entrepreneur. Just do. How great were those first couple of years? Like that was. I don't know if you remember this story, but we're in Sherman and Sterling's office, and we're
1: singing Disney songs because <laughs> we have these little kids. So we were watching the same Disney videos. Show you yeah, so we're <laughs> sitting there working on this multi-hundred multi- billion dollar merger, but we're sitting singing. And this guy walks in and he's like, what are you doing? (laughs) And we're like, we are singing. He's like, why are you singing?" like, because it's Disney. It's so fun. He was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Anyway, he was this awesome guy who we got to know. He was working on the other side of the deal. And at the end of it, we tried to recruit him, like cause anytime we met anyone we liked, we were yes. like, We so love you. Why don't you come join us? And this guy named Ken Hirschman, he didn't join us, where I was so bummed because he yeah, would have been great. Really great. But it turns out, fast forward, I become a VC. I join August Capital we fund ebates. I'm on the Ebates board. We hire this guy, Kevin Johnson, who's now our venture partner, and Kevin hires his general counsel, who he used to work with, Ken Hirschman. <laughs> And I get to work with Hirschman again. And Hirschman was
0: just as awesome. Well, and then just to continue the story. So this last Monday, we had a CEO dinner with all the CEOs over. And one of our CEOs is the CEO founder of a company called Wafrax. Okay. He's an Egyptian guy. He's an amazing person. And I was like, you know, as you know, like how did you get connected to Kevin Johnson? Who's the one who introduced the company to us? He's like, well, it's it's really strange. I cold emailed Kevin because I really liked the Ebates business and I wanted to learn more. I was thinking how I could do that business and localize it and capitalize in Egypt and Mina. And Kevin didn't respond after my first email. I sent him another one. And that time he responded by ceasing Ken Hirschman, (laughs) who then got on the phone with us hour after hour and shared all of the sort of tidbits about what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, right. Go do these things. And by the way, it's a great
1: example it's the same thing. We experienced the same thing, Ken, which is Ken's an amazing attorney, but he's now a business person. Like his focus is in running the business. So he was a great attorney. We tried to hire him as attorney, but in the end, we all had the same thing, which was, oh, this business stuff is really compelling. And just a question of like when you got sucked out. And so we had worked together for a couple of years, two and a half years. It was kind of crazy time i'm sure you experienced exactly what i did which was every one of our clients tried to hire us yep and not because we're amazing although we are but because they needed help and we were really good and we also like we're killing ourselves <laughs> it's work. they all tried to hire us and then dave markhart founder of august capital says hey david have you ever thought about the venture business? And eventually, I come to you and say, "Hey, bad news. Yeah, I'm leaving." and you were like, "What?" You know, like, "Don't leave me." But you were also like, "Of course, I would do that yeah. too, right?" You, I think you, I said, "Don't leave me," but if you do leave me, take take me, me with you. <laughs> you did say, "Take me with you." It took a long time for us to get reunited, but but it's interesting, right? In the 20 years, literally, that we did not work together, of course, you built this gigantic legal practice. But in the meantime, you kind of like got distracted by other amazing things. So how did that happen? And how did you have the time? Like law is supposed to be this all-encompassing thing. And yet you were able to start a company. You were able to you know, fund a bunch of other companies and all of that. What is it that made that possible in light of the fact that you were still crushing yourself as an amazing lawyer? Right? So there's
0: two people that I give credit to. It's you and Jim Forty. And the reason I give you guys credit is you've taught me that you don't need to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> Jim never slept because he was always interested in the parties and all that <laughs> stuff. You never slept because you just have this incredible drive, and there was stuff to get and there done. Was stuff to get done, and so I loved our first couple of years at Perkins because we were starting something new and we were defining where it was going. Um, and we did something pretty darn unique, which was this equity thing. Like for us, it was really important to align our interests with our companies. Give them access to us without suffocating them with legal fees and reaping the upside of what they're doing. And so we set up these equity policies that then became increasingly fun for me to oversee. You know, first, I didn't sleep a lot. Second, the law business I loved, it gave me energy. It didn't drain me. I just mm-hmm. really enjoyed it. I loved meeting new companies. I loved, finding a way to help, even if it was in this little sliver of an area, I felt like I was contributing. Well, by the way, in part, that's because you
1: and I practiced law differently. You can you know, confirm or deny, but my view was what was unique about our partnership and what was clearly made us have amazing clients who were extraordinarily loyal to us is that we wanted to do anything that would help your business succeed. Yeah. And the vast majority of that wasn't legal. <laughs> it was like, It was helping get deals done. It was introducing people. It was giving feedback. It was interviewing folks. It was doing all these things. Like that's unbelievably fun. And when you've earned the trust of your clients, they let you do that stuff that otherwise, I'm sure you had associates who worked for you were like, how do you get that? Partners who worked with you were like, why are you doing these things? Other lawyers, like, I don't understand how you can possibly practice law this way. It's not law. And the answer is, anything to help these clients be successful. Yeah.
0: And taking an interest in really caring about their business leads you to that. Like, cause if you care and you're interested, you're going to find ways to help, even if it's not in the one area that you were trained to help in. And I think the equity was another part of it. It's like, okay, we're really partners here. We're really, right. we really have this relationship. Let's both enjoy this. So you know, I started doing that and I got lucky. Like the first investment that we made was Open Table, right? And good one. Yes, it took a while, but it, it turned out to be a phenomenal return. And there was others. There's Trulia was an amazing investment. Turned out to be, I don't know how many X returned, but it was phenomenal. And Cloudera turned out to be great. And Box was great. And Hotel Tonight was great. There's a whole bunch of them. So there was the law practice and then there was this investment stuff and it was becoming increasingly lucrative and increasingly important to the firm. So I spent a good amount of time and I didn't want it to get messed up. I wanted it to go the right way and I didn't want it to be investment first, relationship second. I wanted it to be relationship first and then investment if there was
1: an opportunity. And the firm recognized because, you know, what you said is is increasingly important and valuable to the firm and therefore you could then expend energy on that. Yep, Perkins realized that, hey, listen, this is a better use of Buddy Arnheim's time getting our money and the equity in these companies than maybe doing another draft of a contract. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I never loved, nor was I exceptionally good at drafting. like That I will admit. I can draft. (laughs) I still probably could if I wanted to, but I don't want to. The other thing though is I think that all of us are able to perform optimally when we're fully engaged and happy, right? And so for me, that meant having some of my other interests satisfied. And so the investment stuff was cool. I liked it. It was something new to learn. And then I got dragged into starting this company, right? Yes, yeah, this is crazy
1: town. Can you think seriously of any other lawyer, nevermind law partner, who while staying an attorney, ended up creating a business that was as successful as yours? I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't know. think of a single,
0: but anyway. But it felt tell, so natural. Do tell us more. Yeah, I love this story. So I had been working with an entrepreneur, who had started this mobile advertising company, never raised a lick of outside capital. It became an incredibly lucrative business. And um, he was cash flowing six figures a week, and it was amazing. And um called me up one day and he's like, You yeah, know, I've got all this cash and figure, what am I going to do with it? Yeah, that? I should make some investments. Do you have anything going on? i like, Oh my gosh, you know, yeah. what? To, yeah, I've got a ton of companies that would die to have an investment from you. And so we did a little of that, and I think it went reasonably well for a few months. And then he called me up one day, and he's like, hey, thinking of making an investment. And I was like, oh, okay. He's calling his lawyer to like help him think through the structure or do something like that. And he's like, no, no, I, it's, it's my roommate from boarding school. I love him to death. I've known him forever. I love what he's doing, but I'm not being objective. It's like, I need an objective eye on this investment. Will you meet with him, you let me know what you think about his idea. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. This
1: is what you want as a lawyer is for someone to say, hey, how about you go do,
0: yeah, go tell me what you think of the business, right? So I met with this guy, Max, who's a genius and one of the best storytellers ever. And he told me this story. And it's basically, there's been billions of dollars invested in battery technology. And as a result of that, the batteries have gotten smaller and they hold more energy. And there's been billions of dollars invested in solar arrays and they've gotten more efficient and less expensive. And then there's been billions of dollars invested in these new materials, one of which is carbon fiber that's you know just as strong as steel and seven times lighter. And you put all three of those things in a blender and you mix it up and all of a sudden out pops a solar-powered drone that flies at high altitude perpetually from which you can provide comm services and imaging services. And it's just like Boom. Wow, what a story. Is that really real? And so I started asking those questions. Like, by the way, we were just talking
1: about this. I teach this class at Stanford B School, and one of the things we were telling the students is that oftentimes more than one person has the same idea. Like you yes. need to be able to execute. And it's like, "Well, why does that happen?" And it's exactly what you just described. Max was not the only person who observed that carbon fiber made it super light and that battery tech was more efficient and that there were, you know, but he put it together, he created this idea,
0: yeah. and then you had to execute and I believe that's where you came Yeah, in, And that's exactly <laughs> right. So I started asking a lot of questions and it was like, well, I haven't thought, of it. I haven't it. I did not yet. I don't know. and So I found myself essentially writing the business plan and thinking through sort of the tactics, not to take anything away from Max. I mean, it is his company. He was the main founder and he was a genius, still is. Um, but that's the role I played. And so very- So shortly, you got
1: to be his partner in crime, doing the things he was less focused on, less good at. He did the things you couldn't do. And together you founded this company
0: and got it off the ground. As I recall, you helped fund it. Yep. Funded it with, I first met myself and with this client. And then over time brought in some friends. In fact, I remember at the lobby, three or four months before we sold the company, we didn't know we were selling it. We were just doing a bridge and there was a handful of lobby attendees i told the story to and they're like well if you're raising capital i'm like well we are and so brad and a whole bunch of people sort of invested in that last thing and i'm so happy because 90 days later we sold it and gave everybody a 10x on their investment so i was really just that was awesome. Uh, that is that really is, that is awesome. So we've had that at the lobby conference, right? I mean, yeah.
1: you know, Uber got seed funded at the lobby conference. Yeah. Talk about like a great conversation at the bar, right? Yeah. And there's our plenty, <laughs> yeah, where were we? What the heck? I was running the conference. I was busy. Travis, come find me. <laughs> but yeah, pretty good. I mean, this is the thing about networks and relationships and hangout. It's a reason the lobby is such a great thing because in you Bring in all these incredibly thoughtful, smart people, and they want to
0: help each other. They want to help you succeed, et cetera. You know, I'll tell entrepreneurs, are like, why are you calling yourself Lobby Capital? I'll go through the whole story. And one of the things I've been saying recently is like, if you don't know what it is, I understand. But for those that are in the know, it's a big deal. And I really mean that. Like, holy smokes, the community of the lobby, it's not just great. It's truly extraordinary. And not only is it great people that have done amazing things or are doing amazing things, but the cooperation. No, the the generosity,
1: the expectation of participation, all of these things, which is a hard thing to Create like it's oh, a hard man, thing, you've done and so I think it's just lucky, right? It's alchemy and whatever, but it is awesome. It's pretty amazing, and so you got to experience this. Yeah,
0: so you go to help build the very first drone it and get cool. them out there. Was and- really, you know, we there were some major milestones. There was first getting the funding together. There was finding a place that they could build the bird and test it without anybody seeing. It happened to be in New Mexico. And then we found out that there was actually ways to get some of the salary subsidized through that because there wasn't a lot of startup activity in New Mexico. And, you know, Max got to the point where he Realized that he'd want to be the CEO. So there was the need to find a CEO. We brought in a guy named Vern Rayburn. And we, as you at this point, like business
1: stuff, like, hey, let's find a new CEO. Obviously, it wasn't going to happen without him, but you were the driving force to say, all right, let's find great people and let's help you raise money. And how do we think about
0: the business side of this? Yeah. You know, I hate patting myself on the back anytime. So there was a lot of people involved, but yeah, I spent a lot of time. Yeah. I would say. So you build the thing, then, it works. And then It started working. I will say we realized that it was going to be a long haul. So we not, then started realizing we needed to raise a lot of capital. And so we, to gear up for that, and this was a lesson that I've shared with a lot of entrepreneurs, when you're going to raise capital, you got to think holistically about all of the pieces that are going to be impactful on the business that would help an investor get confident that those pieces will have a high likelihood of falling in place. And so we went to Google, who we thought was an interesting partner and competitor, and we told Mike Cassidy what we were doing. And he was running the only thing that we knew of that was competitive, Project Loon. And we went to Facebook, and we actually had a conversation with Mr. Zuckerberg. And we talked to Lockheed, and we talked to a couple other strategics on top of starting to socialize with venture folks. And along that path, it became clear that there was strategic interest and we ended up getting a couple of those players very interested. Both of them made offers, we committed to one and then we ended up going with the other. And Mm. so ultimately we sold the company to Google and it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. The only bittersweet thing about it was unlike all the other employees at Titan, because I was the non-employee co-founder, I did not go with them to Google. I continued to be lawyering. So I didn't get to see the after acquisition integration into Project Loon and all the things that ended up unfolding after that. But I will say it it gave me an enormous amount of confidence that I know what the heck I'm doing. I know how to sort of help pull these pieces together. And you know what? It's okay to take a risk. Like it's very rewarding.
1: Well, it was, it was super, I mean, of course it was economically rewarding, but in many ways, building a thing is amazing, right? And having it work, but that sort of sense of ownership and that sense that, This is a thing that exists because of my hard work. That's kind of amazing. But tell me about, you had always thought the venture business was a good business and something that was a good fit for you. You know, we had talked about it forever, et cetera. Like what prompted you to finally say, huh, maybe I should be a venture
0: capitalist. Uh, So, you know, I finished Titan. It did give me a little bit more financial flexibility. And so I started investing more aggressively. And I was actually, a year or two after that, my wife and I were invited to join a really close friend, an amazing person, and a guy who I probably is the one mentor I actually did have, Ron Conway, on a trip. He's in the Mediterranean. We met him and spent a a week with him and his lovely, lovely family. And we were on a boat. and, And when we boarded, Paul Graham and Jessica Livingston had been on the week before with them. And and so we overlapped for a day and they left. The Uh, founders of of Y Combinator. And over the course of that week, in talking with Ron, who is arguably still the most prolific angel investor of all time and one of the most successful, you know, was a sounding board for me about what I could do next with my investing. And I came up with an idea that, hey, you know, Y Combinator seems to produce a unique, you know, a disproportionate number of successes. I uh, now had some relationships that would give me improved visibility into what was going on at Y Combinator. And I felt like I was a pretty good stock picker. And so with that theme, I ended up raising a small fund that was going to go in and, and cherry pick out of the handful of cohorts of YC successful startups. And so I raised that fund and I made 14 investments and um, it's performed really, really well. And it, it was independent of your law thing.
1: It was just your own fund. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You went, had the money, put it to work.
0: Great. Yeah. Now there is some money in it from Perkins Creek Park. Great. Because of course they money. should. But, right. it's, but in the end- and It, it was, was a totally independent thing of my practice. And I loved it. It was so fun. It was an excuse to meet all these entrepreneurs. And frankly, it reinforced my belief that I can pick good stocks because that, that portfolio is doing phenomenally well. And then from that, I ended up doing some more stuff. I did some SPVs in a company. First one was a big check in a company called Level Home, which the jury's still out, but it seems to be doing really well. The second one is in a company called Lively HSA, which again, jury's still out, but it's doing really well. Third one was in Hippo Home Insurance, which went public last year. And so I realized, and you met at the lobby. And by the way, I met the founder of Hippo Home Insurance five years earlier at the lobby conference. Like, who's oh, awesome? That sounds awesome. Sounds such great.
1: So you met yeah, us. Yeah, off. So you they, were making these investments. Yeah, so making the investments. Suddenly, you're like doing a bunch of investing
0: when you yeah. should be a lawyer. And I was enjoying it more. At this point, I'd been practicing for 20 some odd, 30, almost 30 years. And I was like, you know, I'm just not getting as much of a charge out of yet another series B term sheet or another LOI to be bought or... And I was loving the investing. It was just the right evolution of my interest. So that's kind of how it ended up. So in a
1: smart buddy way, because he's a good business person, not just uh, your everyday lawyer, buddy reaches out to me and says, hey, David, I'd love to chat with you. I have a firm that's interested in hiring me and I'd love your perspective. And... I said, oh, I'd love to have that conversation. Of course, I'm happy to talk to Buddy anytime. And I instantly went to my partner, Eric, and said, we should partner with Buddy. Like if there's anyone on the planet who sees the world the way we do, who thinks about entrepreneurs the way we do, et cetera, it's Buddy. And Eric was like, oh yeah. And I had, of course, spent obviously way more time, but oh yeah, I love Buddy. I spent time with him at the lobby. You should spend more time and Long story short, we sort of fell in love and then we started ideating about this new fund lobby capital and which we ultimately raised.
0: Again, one of these opportunities, like there was nobody else I could talk to that I knew I could get an unfiltered answer from. I mean, because I'd known you forever. I trust you implicitly. And I was having trouble sorting out pros and cons. And I was in your guest house. We were talking on the couch and you suggested this opportunity and I think for like the next half an hour, I was um, not able to pay attention to anything. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> and it was fun. But I do think like
1: our wives must have been, oh my God, right these two. T- like, here we go. We have to put up with this madness again. But anyway, we digress. So Buddy Arnheim. Fun. So fun. I'm so, so grateful that you rejoined me as my partner in crime. This has been incredibly fun. I hope anyone listening actually didn't find what <laughs> right, It was fun for us. Um, Anyway, uh, this has been The Fabric, and I have been your guest host, David Hornick. I will never be allowed to do it again because Buddy will be reclaiming it, but I have appreciated it, enjoyed it while I've been given the mic. All righty.
0: This has been The Fabric, a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. I'm Buddy Arnheim, and I look forward to our next conversation.